Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, and this is the next in our Editors-in-Chief's podcasts. I'm delighted today to welcome Krishna Joshi and Michael Chen from the Departments of Neurosurgery and Neurological Sciences at Rush University Medical Center to discuss their manuscript, which is now available on the JNIS website and will be appearing in an upcoming print issue. The manuscript is entitled Endovascular Thrombectomy for Acute Ischemic Stroke in Patients with Cancer, a Propensity-Matched Analysis. Prior to beginning our podcast, I'd like to read a word from our sponsors. Rapid Medical pioneers adjustable intravascular tools that offer physicians expanded capabilities without compromise between safety and efficacy. So if you're looking for devices to do a bit more for you, solutions such as the Tiger Retriever 13, the smallest thrombectomy device in use, adjust to the vessel, allowing you to relax tension of the device prior to retrieval. For more information, email info at rapid-medical.com. Welcome, Krishna and Mike, and thanks again for doing this. Thanks for inviting us to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, guys, this is certainly an important consideration for interventionalists. Uh, We consider a cancer diagnosis seriously when counseling patients on elective procedures such as aneurysms and vascular malformation treatment, though it seems uh, for obvious reasons in stroke patients, we don't have the opportunity to get a history in many of our patients. But when we do, it can potentially affect and impact our uh, decision-making on uh, whether to perform mechanical thrombectomy. So can you just uh, briefly summarize what was your rationale? What were some of the you know, the points in, in the previous literature that pushed you guys to perform this uh, analysis and explain how propensity-matched analysis uh, helped in comparing these relatively small uh, subgroups of patients. Yeah, I mean, before we go into the methodology, I would uh, like to give a brief background of what really was the impetus in studying this subgroup of patients. It started when I was kind of rotating in neuro-oncology a few years back, and I noted that the average life expectancy of patients with cancer has tremendously increased in the last decade. And it's all thanks to the advancements in the newer cancer therapies, and especially since the introduction of immunotherapies. Now, we know that for sure that these patients have increased risk of stroke from various studies done previously. And the increased risk of stroke is probably secondary to cancer and also their advanced age. And however, these patients were traditionally excluded in the stroke thrombectomy trials. Some of the previous trials have actually shown that patients with active cancer have poorer functional outcome and higher death rates, both after thrombolysis and thrombectomies. So we thought this could pose a difficult dilemma, especially for the interventionists in the the modern era when they see these patients from this subgroup. And uh, we wanted to go back to our case series and see what we did in our records and how their outcomes were when matched to patients without cancer. So to do this, we uh, kind of devised a retrospective chart review of all the patients that we did thrombectomy on from 2015 onwards uh, to 2020. One of the real challenges what we faced when designing this study was to define what exactly is active cancer. Though we wanted to capture all the patients with cancer, we did not want to make the selection criteria too granular. 
because that would just make it impractical as a selection criteria in the acute setting. So to do this, we went through all the charts uh, in Epic search and we use the keywords cancer, malignancy, and metastasis. And once these uh, key terms showed up in the charts, we included patients who are either diagnosed with cancer, who are either receiving treatment in any form, surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy, or who are treated conservatively. We also included patients who are diagnosed with cancer but refused treatment. And once we had the list of all these patients, we went through the charts in detail to collect information on the type of cancer, the cancer staging, pathology, and treatment. Some of the key outcome measures we noted in these patients were the 90-day disability as assessed by the MRS shifts, and also noted the revascularization scores in form of Tiki score and the rate of uh, post-procedural intracerebral hemorrhage. And we used the Heidelberg classification to uh, note the various kinds of hemorrhage we saw. And for propensity matching, we used a trained statistician from our department who performed a propensity score match between the cancer group and the non-cancer group. And we used three main variables to match. There was the modified Rankin score before the stroke, the age, and the sex. And uh, we used a matching ratio of 1 is to 5. For listeners who are not familiar with what exactly propensity matching is, it is a, in simple terms, it's a statistical matching technique that attempts to estimate the effect of a treatment by an intervention by accounting for the covariates that predict receiving the treatment. In brief, it, it reduces the bias that happens due to confounding variables that could be found in an estimate of the treatment effect obtained from simply comparing outcome among units. In the next section, we discuss our results. In brief, we had 380 patients who underwent endovascular thrombectomy over the study period, of which 19 patients had active cancer. We saw the mean age uh, in the cancer group was 71 years, and uh, most of them were women. 90% of these patients were uh, women in the, in the cancer group. We go on to uh, show a few tables. The table one contains some descriptive statistics of the cases with cancer. As seen in, in general population, lung cancer was the most common malignancy, followed by breast cancer. We also noted a few gastrointestinal, hematologic, hepatobiliary, prostate, and urogenital. So we kind of had the whole uh, gamut of the various cancer types. However, we did not have any patients with uh, brain cancer that were uh, treated with uh, thrombectomy. It was interesting to note that 40% uh, of patients had stage 4 cancer at, at presentation. As seen in most trials, the, the most common vessel of occlusion was the middle cerebral artery followed by the uh, ICA terminus. We did not have any uh, strokes from the posterior circulation. Um, most of our patients, 84% uh, had a good pre-procedural MRS of uh, 0 to 1. And at presentation, had an NHS score of uh, around 22. We were able to successfully revascularize uh, or achieve a Tiki 2B or 3 in 90% of the patients. Uh, interestingly, we, we saw 58% uh, of the patients, that is 11 of the 19 patients, had some kind of hemorrhagic transformation after the procedure. And most importantly, nine patients were alive at the end of one year, of which seven were actually able to continue their cancer treatment. Well, on table two, we kind of compare the cases of active cancers uh, and controls based on the propensity matching. And we saw that most of the, the factors that we compared did not have any significant difference, except for hemorrhagic transformation, which was uh, significantly higher in the, in the cancer group. So uh, you do mention, obviously, in your table, the types of cancer, and I know it's a relatively small group of only 19 patients. Did you see any propensity of one type of cancer in particular uh, posing a greater risk of hemorrhagic transformation? 
No, we actually uh, used a statistical analysis to see if any of the cancer types had higher incidence of bleed, but we did not find any uh, kind of propensity indicating a particular type of cancer causing an increased rate of bleed. And obviously, you excluded patients with uh, brain metastases or primary brain tumors. Right. We did not start out as uh, that as an exclusion factor. Actually, when we were designing the study, we hoped to see more patients uh, with brain metastasis who would have strokes. But uh, interestingly, none of the patients that we uh, had in the active cancer group had brain metastasis. Oh, one extra point on that. I wish there was a way that we could truly get that actual information all likelihood, practically speaking, since our denominator is simply those patients who did undergo thrombectomy, there may have been some patients who were initially triaged for thrombectomy with metastases that didn't end up going for thrombectomy. So I think it would, it would be um, nice to look at, you know, I think some meta-analyses have since been published, which have looked at small, I mean, they're all pretty small series of patients with brain metastases to see their results. But yeah, none, none were included in our study and likely just a function of the practical reality of our cohort. Sure. So hemorrhagic transformation occurred in 11 of the 19 cancer patients, which is obviously, I guess, troubling when you think about uh, just the number over 50% or so. But you do mention that these hemorrhagic transformations were by and large asymptomatic. So can you describe them a little bit more? Was this mainly contrast staining within the stroke or subarachnoid hemorrhage? What was the, the typical appearance of these hemorrhagic transformation cases? Yeah, we went through the imaging of all these 11 patients uh, who had hemorrhagic transformation uh, along with the radiologist. And uh, most of the, I mean, all of these patients had just um, like a class one kind of hemorrhagic transformation where it was just uh, either small amount of blood within the infarcted zone. Nothing had a symptomatic icy head. There was no mass effect in any of these patients. So none of these patients required any kind of treatment for this hemorrhage. And you do discuss uh, some of the potential causes of hemorrhagic transformation. I think it might be good for our listeners to uh, understand that a little bit better. Can you discuss, um, in particular, cancer-associated coagulopathy and, and how it plays a role in the development of large vessel occlusion? Yeah, um, it has been studied in detail, actually, about uh, you know cancers as a potential source of uh, coagulopathy, and, and especially cancer is considered as a hyperthrombotic state. Previous studies have shown uh, factors that have been uh, released from cancers, especially adenocarcinomas of uh, various regions, especially the lung, uh, release uh, factors which cause uh, increased platelet, uh, platelet aggregation and can cause strokes. In fact, there is uh, kind of like soft guidelines from other uh, cancer societies where uh, these patients are recommended to be put on um, anticoagulants, uh, preferably the direct oral anticoagulant agents to prevent uh, strokes and uh, deep venous thrombosis. And I think this is something that we kind of hope to uh, understand better once we devise uh, further studies you know, with uh, a larger number of cancer patients uh, in the study group. To add to that, um, in terms of the mechanism of you know, cancer-caused coagulopathy, I think there actually have been some small series that have also been published, not ours, that have analyzed clots removed in patients with cancer to look at the composition to see if it may have some profile that's different than what's typically being reported. And I think, just like what Krishna was saying, you know, I think that apparently what limited information is out there is supposedly higher platelet content and, you know, whether that reflects a part of the mechanism or not. But I think you know, again, this is an area that I think if there's some information to suggest, 
you know, treatment could potentially be pursued a little more aggressively than maybe status quo, then hopefully we'll get more information about it from, perhaps from clonistology. Now, Mike, when you mentioned treatment, are you talking about treating these patients, you know, de novo before they've suffered a stroke medically uh, in order to lessen that risk? Oh, yeah, that, that's actually, you know, I mean, both pre, you know, secondary prevention, I think that may have implications as well, depending on the pathophysiology, as well as during the procedure as well, you know, you know, if we have a better understanding of the actual clot composition, if it's cancer-related coagulopathy, would it maybe just favor aspiration versus stent treval? I think all these types of questions are, are very interesting, and, you know, hopefully we get more of an understanding we can understand, so. Sure. Uh, you guys in your discussion uh, make an interesting uh, discussion point, and that was the impact of potentially discontinuing anti-cancer therapy in patients that suffer ELVO and, and undergo treatment. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? How long do you think we would need to discontinue anti-cancer therapy, say, in a you know, a patient that was treated with a mechanical thrombectomy and had a TICI 2C or TICI 3 revascularization how would you address that now? Yeah, uh, we noted that, you know, one of the reasons that previous studies had uh, shown poor outcome was probably because, you know, these patients were tended to discontinue their cancer treatment, which could, uh, you know, cause worsening of their general health status. So we were very interested to see uh, what percentage of these patients actually continue cancer treatment. And to kind of gauge that, we use the metric of cancer treatment at the end of one year from the stroke. And we saw that, you know, of the nine patients that we were able to follow at one year, seven of them were actually able to continue their cancer treatment. And I think, I think that's a very important metric because uh, when these patients discontinue their cancer treatment, they just, you know, the, the metastasis increases. They also, the cancer-associated coagulopathy theoretically increases. So it's very important that they get back to their prior cancer treatments to avoid uh, future strokes and just to have a good functional outcome. Fantastic. Um, guys, uh, just to kind of start wrapping things up here, where does this research that you've done take you now? What more needs to be understood about this particular treatment scenario in patients with cancer and, and how best should we study this in the future? I think this is, you know, just the process of going through this report, I think, allows us to really respect and appreciate just how difficult it is to understand, you know, strokes is such a heterogeneous population to attribute, you know, treatment effect in certain subgroups is so difficult. I think this is just the beginning to see, okay, how do we operationalize our definition of cancer? And then from there, can we identify any nuances that will help inform our triage for stroke thrombectomy, whether we should go or not? And then from there, once we can identify perhaps some subgroups where I think are worthy of additional study, then, then this, you know, further studies can add to that. I think it's just the beginning, but I think what's nice about it is allows us to be a little more nuanced about our understanding of this subgroup of patients rather than grouping them all together um, as guidelines seem to suggest that we should do. But, you know. yeah, one thing I would kind of add to that is, you know, one important limitation that we saw in our study was that uh, this was, uh, there, there could be a lot of selection bias, um, especially, you know, selecting patients with cancer prior to the therapies. So, you know, designing a prospective study, a multi-institutional study where, you know, these uh, patients are not you know, selected at the beginning would actually be great to kind of get uh, more granular results in this field. 
Well, thank you very much, guys, for putting together this this very intriguing work. This manuscript, again, is entitled Endovascular Thrombectomy for Acute Ischemic Stroke in Patients with Cancer, a Propensity-Matched Analysis. And I was fortunate to be joined today by Krishna Joshi and Michael Chen, who are co-authors on this important manuscript. This is currently on the JNIS website and will be appearing in a future print issue. So thank you very much, guys, for your time today and uh, continue with the fantastic work. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks again for reminding us.